Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. I'm delighted to be joined this week by the journalist, author, and podcaster, Anne McElvoy. Anne has had a fascinating career thus far, and over the years, she's worked at The Spectator, The Telegraph, The Evening Standard, and The Economist. Now heads up all things podcast-related at Politico. She's also a regular on Radio 4's The Moral Maze. Now, in this episode, we have a wide-ranging discussion about her career, how she spent her formative years trying to get into East Berlin at a time where most were trying to escape. We discuss the interplay between politics and journalism, the technological disruption facing the industry, but also the opportunities that present themselves, including, of course, the medium of podcasts. Anne is a brilliant journalist. She was a joy to talk to. I do hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did recordings. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Anne McElboy, welcome to the podcast. And let's start with your background. Where did you grow up and how did you start your career? I grew up in sticks relative to where we're sitting at in a rather swanky part of London. I grew up in northwest Durham, about 12 miles outside Durham's so rural former mining community. After that, I went to school and I was very well supported by my school, by my parents, and I went to Oxford in about 1985 and I read German and philosophy at Wharton College, Oxford, and spent a lot of time in East Germany, which turned out to be quite a good investment mm-hmm. in terms of my, my later career. And I was just very fascinated by the Eastern Bloc. And I was joking to our head of the newsroom at Politico, a great guy called Matt Kaminsky in Washington, who grew up in Poland at the same time. He said, I was always trying to get out and uh, trying to get on exchanges. It was very hard to get out of Poland. I said, well, that's funny, because I was trying to get in. Um, so I did spend quite a lot of time in the East Germany. East Germany was going to be my academic specialism. And I discovered the journalism. What drew you to the world of journalism? I think from about the second year of Oxford, I, I was uh, editing the student newspaper, and I thought, this is the most fun you can have. And the old joke about power without responsibility, of course, there is responsibility and there should be as you as you go up the chain in journalism as there, as there is a doubtless in investing. But there is a bit at the beginning which is immensely good fun when you just find things you are interested in, you try to persuade people that you be the person to write about them or broadcast, and off you go. And so I started to contribute to papers. I did a, my first interviews in German for the German service, the BBC, and I just thought, well, this is fun. You know, this is like writing an essay. Except people are a bit impressed or listen, and I thought this is the job for me. So I never really looked back, and I joined the Times as a trainee, and then the next year I was back in East Berlin. And what was joining the Times and as a trainee like back then, and what was the sort of newsroom like? I wonder if you can paint that picture <laughs> first. Gosh. And we're not, by the way, always going to talk about your background, but yeah. I do want to just That's focus a on this. I was going to point <laughs> Well, you have to think of the kind of groups that the Times traineeship was a bit of a donkey derby. They tended to take three people and keep one, and everybody knew that. And it was quite an interesting group of people, everyone, I should say, who I knew then went on to do great things, whether or not they were retained by the Times or not. One of them, indeed, was Boris Johnson, who oh, <laughs> was yes. thrown out, I think, the year or two years before me for manufacturing the quote heavens. But it shows, you know, there was a rigour to the training. Roland Rudd was mm-hmm. the Times training. So it was quite an interesting group of People who went on to have very different careers, some in journalism and, and some who decided to, <laughs> to, to go to the city instead. The, the 
a vibe if you were an Oxbridge trainee, to put it that way. The news desk under a wonderful editor died recently called Charlie Wilson, who uh, was from Glasgow and was really not what you would have thought of as the grand old times. He was the scrappy news desk and come for the mail. He was a great newsman, but I think he looked at us as a slight affectation when we these terrible kids who had ideas about our station. It was quite tough on us. So he had a great turn of phrase. He once told a sub-editor he was hanging on by his fingernails and then he passed the desk about six months later and the guy had a clock down on his keyboard and Charlie said, you're still hanging on. <laughs> so it was a bit like the old uh-huh. school. I mean, you know, a lot of that has probably gone out of newsrooms ever oh. a lot more. Uh, at least superficially courteous. But it was scrappy, but it was very good at actually just getting you to do. Do you think you're well prepared for it, having done your time at the student newspaper? And, you know, what skills did you need to equip yourself with kind of early on that made you successful? I think definitely doing it, and I say this, Mm -hmm. obviously now at this stage of life, it tends to be to children of friends or to just young friends, is just go and do it. You know, don't think about it too much as will I like it prospectively, what sort of journalism should I do, what is it, what story do I want to break that's going to change the world. Good, if you could do that, you know, by full support, but just get the handiwork right and just things like getting headlines and understanding whether it's digital or whether it's still mm-hmm. paper is why somebody to read this what's the title mm-hmm. what makes it pop what makes you go ha do you know what i saw something today that made me want to consume it and i think you know at oxford and student journalism of course we play a lot with cultural references which, some of which i think are probably a bit past their range one day but i remember keith joseph coming you know who was then Margaret Thatcher's advisor on education loathed by most of the student body and it was at the time the Echo and the Bunnyman song Spare Us the Cutter was in the charts so I thought oh, there you go you know so that one was a pop up student award and it just the buzz of thinking someone else thought that was cool just do it keep doing it mm-hmm. until it gets better mm-hmm. or if it doesn't try something else and I think to that extent it was very useful yeah. I want to change tack and talk about the decline of traditional print media now i think if i had a nickel for every time i heard that you know this is the end of newspapers you know this is the end of print and it never seems to happen they morph and they change and they find other new channels to push through their content i wonder whether or not you can comment on that metamorphosis because you've been part of it I've been part of it, and I've also sometimes been affected by it. And there is disruption in the sector. It was a very different world, I think, to those who came in, say, in the 60s or 70s who could see the end of their career in the going off you've got your gold watch. But I think there is certainly a disruption there, and that is changing the nature of journalism. It is faster. It is digital. If you're not in digital, digital led at the moment, I mean, there are very tiny niches. Mm-hmm collector's items. And of course, some people love, I'm sure a lot of people listening mm-hmm. say, what are you talking about? I love my paper copy of it. That's whatever they get. But frankly, as a business model, it was one of the sort of awakenings for me. I was on the evening standard for a lot of years. I was executive editor towards the end. I was effectively, he was acting deputy. And I thought, well, this is it. You know, I will see by the price. No, and then, you know, the whole thing just really ended up in financial troubles, losing a fortune, Journalists hate the idea that they're working something that's just losing a lot of money because in the end, you know, we're all about the reality check. Mm-hmm. If we can't check ourselves, we've got a problem. <laughs> and then it was bought, you know, as it was uh, bought as it happened by a Russian, by a mm-hmm. really, uh, Lebedev, the Lebedev 
for having any sort of surgery at all. I still write a column there. But to me, that was the wake-up call. It's basically you go, and, yeah. and, and I asked a hard-headed man called David Montgomery, who's big in local papers, mm-hmm. who's very taciturn Elston, and I said, what should I do? I've put so much work into here. And he said, go and get a new job. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that is what the sector has been like. Yeah. But, yes, there are new jobs, there are new openings, but it is, I'm afraid, flex and learn. So quite an unsettling sector to be in, I suppose. It's not like it's a job for life. You know, you've got to be kind of tenacious. I wonder actually if we can move on to the the interplay between journalism and politics, because yeah. I think there's always been this sort of funny dance between journalists and politicians. You know, politicians need journalists as much as journalists need politicians. And I wonder if that has changed over the last, let's say, 10 years with the advent of technology and the immediacy of content <laughs> creation and digestion. It's a great question because I think it's changed in a lot of ways, but I think the fundamental things apply, as they say in Casablanca. The fundamental things apply is that you try to get information out of politicians, cross-hatch it with other sources, find stories, get your analysis to be not always perfectly on point, but at least not more right than wrong. I think what has changed is the speed of those interactions. Uh-huh. I went on after the Times to be deputy editor at The Spectator, and it prided itself and still does on sort of understanding conservative politics better than any other uh, product in the big niche. It's a niche, but it's quite a wide niche. It's very influential mm-hmm. beyond its immediate readership. And we would, with then editor Frank Johnson, take a cab, go somewhere. I mean, we really would go half across town to Chelsea or something to take out some minister or someone we thought would be uh, great fun in the upper world, the very long spectator lunches as they're <laughs> in those days. And if this thing took five hours, it was just deemed uh-huh. to be, that was a good use of time, mm-hmm. you know, because we were told something interesting, if indeed we could remember it, after the five-hour lunch. And I remember we sort of fished out, <laughs> going <laughs> off to sort of drinking with some uh, mm-hmm. liberal democrat who I think was, really, was agitating for leadership at the time, and actually having to phone up and say, oh, I think you need to come and get me out of a bar. <laughs> I'm not saying that never happens now. But there was certainly a sense that the days went on. Mm-hmm. You know, life was timeless, days were long. But the sense that things now much more likely on WhatsApp a lot of the day, you may just say, can I just check in with you on this? Mm-hmm. There's a lot more digital information flow, which is changing the way yeah. the stories come out. Yeah. You've noticed a lot of things about leaked WhatsApps now. Yeah. People think it's end-to-end encrypted. Well, it is if nobody takes a screenshot and publishes it the next day in the Daily Muffin, you know. Well, that so just has really changed. Let's pause on WhatsApp because that was a striking thing about the recent Matt Hancock expose, and it kind of looked and felt quite amateur. You know, the the conversation was not what one perhaps might expect. Ministers, senior ministers, dealing with very serious problems at the time, would communicate like. And and I wonder, you know, is that technology sort of solving for the lowest common denominator. <laughs> That's a very yeah, intriguing thought. You know, it is the medium and the message questions mm. here, and they do meld. I think it, some of the characters involved to some of them are more likely to be very informal than others. I mean, you know, remember politics was in the 70s, and a lot of it has now been turned a lot into very effective TV drama, the Wilson Wars, and Jeremy Thorpe was very sweary. It was quite vulgar. Mm-hmm. So I think you might be slightly... So you might no. be vulgarising a little bit that it was off a bubble, mm-hmm. not recorded, or it was in memoirs. Uh-huh. You know, when Jodie Gosson said he was going to close every effing grammar school in the country, yeah. you know, now if you'd seen that in a WhatsApp, you might be saying to me, this is really 
Labour intellectuals speaking like that. I think the fact is we see more of it now. It is more open, and also, crucially, you see it faster. And as you've seen with Partygate, the response to something just after an event yeah. is, I think, very different to finding out something. It was almost a sense of, you wait, and then we'll give you a memoir, and mm. there might be a, a rollicking stories in it. By this time, just, you know, the yeah. person is gone and on the speech circuit and then that's the end of that. Now they're often in the thick of it when we consume it. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think that does change things. I think WhatsApp does. Like, the speed of it. So the fact that we think that it is temporary, finding out the hard way it's not, they do perhaps take more risks than just saying something from the gut that if they wrote a considered email... And then there was a time when people said, oh, look, what's in these emails? So, you know, the WhatsApp is the new email. Email is the new phone call. Phone call is what used to be said only privately. Maybe it is just the new medium. And, um, yeah, maybe I put politicians on too much of a pedestal. <laughs> but I wonder, going back to this interface between journalists and politicians, I mean, it's amazing. It seems to me that politicians almost use their time in office as kind of a springboard to do other things, journalism being one of them. And I wonder if that's a, does that present a problem in politics? You know, there are some very highly paid ex-politicians that we could think about. And does politics just become a means to a broader career end? Well, to be honest, I think if you're prepared to slog it out, getting elected to the House of Commons, mm-hmm. representing a constituency, getting through the end of the week surgeries and the, the pressures, the real-time pressures and the presence of the whips in your life, monstering you about whether you are in a vote for uh, or against the government. You know, there are, there are easier ways, frankly, to make money or end up in the pages of the Times, the Telegraph, the Guardian, whatever. So I would read it that the politicians who are good at journalism have often had an interest in it before. Boris Johnson, Michael journalist. Gove. Michael Gove. Michael, not a fellow trainee with me because he trained at BBC, but we were very much around at the same time. And I saw there a journalist, who's someone who absolutely could have gone all the way as a journalist and editor, just as he said, he saw the football pitch and thought, I won't be on the pitch. I was I'm actually very happy to sit on the bench in my seat. <laughs> Does that happen quite early, that feeling of being on the pitch or being in your jersey and jacket? I think he does. Of... Michael Portillo said the same thing, and he's an example, maybe the trend that you describe of someone who was very successful in politics, not success as he wished to be, because he wished to be lead, as he's been a, a fellow, a panelist with me on the Moral Maze on Radio 4 for a lot of years. And I think he was someone who was actually genuinely comfortable in both guises. I think that's relatively rare. There's usually preference. There are some people like Nick Timothy who writes in The Telegraph, Theresa May, special advisor to a bit of a sort of rock and roll time and, uh, and that leadership, and he probably contributed to it as well, he'd say himself, who found a niche in analytical journalism afterwards. I think really where the rewards are, they were more on the speaker circuit and already launched a podcast mm-hmm. Laura Stewart with Alistair Campbell is a good example, very successful podcast, absolutely firmly. It sort of has the impression of being a conversation between someone who's Labour and someone who's Tory. In fact, they're both sort of crazy remain, you know, they're absolutely would go to the state to the front of the remain project. But in some ways that gives them the commonality and that's quite clever. So I think they do go and do other things, but if you want to make money, they're going to go into the speaking circuit, uh, the private sector. Speaking speaking circuit, if you know, if you've been very well known, it's harder. Of course, if shadow minister for drains was where you came out, then that's maybe where it gets more tricky. 
I wonder if we can become a bit more current, and you've recently started a new job at Politico. First of all, what, what attracted you to the job and what attracted you to Politico? And if you can just give us a sort of potted history of Politico. And kind of it relates to my sort of first question on the world of journalism using technology. Politico is just a very interesting company, which I'd sort of had a long eye on uh, long before actually they, they came to me. It was set up a very visionary journalist covering the Beltway, an editor uh, called John Harris in Washington, who said that he noticed when he was in his previous roles that the conversation about politics, policy and power, which are these three big pillars of what the political brand stands for, wants to be deeper on and faster on and we would obviously hope better on than others. He said every time he went out for a drink with journalists, he felt that he came away more informed than when he read their copy. And he said there was something that was going on in the process of the reporting of politics that needed to feel more immediate, more irreverent, that you would feel that is obviously the audience is people who care about politics, whose decisions are informed by it, his day jobs, or who are interested in how policy is evolving in any number of sectors. But really, if you think about it, that's a lot of people. It's a professional class, but it's a lot of people. And he just said a bit fancy and called a playbook, just really like the old-fashioned newsletter. And I think at the time of newsletter, now it sounds very go-ahead, but it sounded quite dead. Mm-hmm. You saw something like sort of tickings or something, bringing the news today, you know. But this thing, you know, went off like a rockhead and another company called Axios set up as a competitor. They all came from the same sort of pond of very go-ahead entrepreneurial journalists. And then in about 2016, Axel Springer, the big go ahead. I think, you know, German media company, i.e. the one that does want to look outside Germany, there are other very good media companies in Germany, but Matthias Dörfner, who was the boss of that shop, just had always wanted to own something in the atmosphere. And having had a new miss with the FT, he just decided to go straight for all digital assets and uh-huh. set up Politico, bought to Politico Europe, and these two things then came together, and that was quite tempting to me because mm-hmm. there was a big expansion afoot and in the last year, just, I thought, a growth company, some of the legacy issues that, you know, all of us have to face in our businesses are just not going to be there. It's going to be different. And that was very attractive. And they also wanted to expand podcasting, which mm-hmm. I think by you is, is my perpetual delight because it is a great way to communicate with people. And I was found it kind of beats working as well. It, you know, it, has, yeah. a, it has a fun to it yeah. that maybe, you know, just slogging out another position paper doesn't. Yeah. Your point on trying to find growth companies in media land is kind of interesting because does that show that, you know, the barriers to entry are just so high? It's hard for sort of up-and-coming media companies to get a headway. Why is that? Are these businesses fortress-like? I think it's because the market is pretty crowded and also differing degrees across the Atlantic, but has bifurcated and certainly that it has happened for Trump years, but it happened a lot more since. So trying to do a product which can appeal to people who want information quickly, very informed, high level, but will treat a Republican race in the Senate or for Speaker with the seriousness, even if the characters are quite out there, a lot of people uh, are going to object to but will treat it with seriousness. We'll find out what their strategy is. We'll go talk to their staffers and be on the wretched WhatsApp, finding out if that majority is going to go through, or indeed it was Politico that broke the story of, of the way the legal ruling was going to go on Roe versus Wade, which we'll back 
abortion rights. A lot, you know, you're not going to say no to that as a, mm. a scoop. Now that needs investment. It needs expertise, and it is harder to build that without some backing. So in the case of the litigator, it has Axel Springer, yes, but also has KKR, it has private equity backing, which means that you can grow fast enough to seize your opportunities. And I think one thing that has become a problem is a relative lack of capital big enough mm-hmm. to help you to enter a market decisively. So quite often what happens instead is people buy an existing distressed asset and then try to shoot it up a mm-hmm. bit. Um, that's happened a, a bit with the independent where I also worked. You know, so I've ever seen a judgment on these models, but there was something, you know, that seemed quite established in the media landscape that kind of went digital, disappeared a bit. Now was a sort of attempt to, to bring it back. The BuzzFeeds and things were great. I think it's shaking us all up. Mm-hmm. But I think they did find it hard to withstand anything linked to advertising. It's a difficult time. So that takes you towards subscriber models. And you've got to be good at subscribers. You've got to understand who your subscribers are. And I learn every day. And it's not an easy thing to do but it but i do think it beats the full dependence on advertising yeah it's interesting i mean the data that you can get from said subscribers and you know how you use that data i think is a massive step change in terms of the business model i wonder if you can comment and i definitely don't want to bite the hand that feeds you but i wonder if you can comment on on what it's like working and if there is a difference between working for a traditional media company and a growth media company with private equity backing are there incentives to sort of put in place as a result of it or not i think there's a bit of a merging i think digital media the, the, in the quality market which you know i can uh, say anything that says that it's just the market that I, I know has sort of adopted more internal accountability about basically quarterly reporting not to be held back by quarterly reporting but i would say it was fairly lax um, you know accounting for you were spending on what for many years of my career. And of course, nobody welcomed accounts coming along and saying you should do this differently. But I think it did teach us a lesson. I remember if you were on this sort of financial or commercial side of the company, you often called that the bean counters as if this was a terrible job. And if you're thinking about that, that's really wrong, right? Because unless you can count the beans, beat the metaphor. Mm-hmm. So I think that has actually made it, in a sense, simpler to move across companies because it's like you. MKRs or your KPIs or these terrible alphabets we have to be all consume now. But basically we say, what are you trying to do? How are you going to measure it? How will we know if we got there? And if we didn't, what are we going to change? I think it's been broadly beneficial. But I would say that because I'm a head of a department, other people might think that's... Yeah, I think where you have to be careful is that you don't lose your esprit and your kind of disruptive mm-hmm. sort of naughtiness along the way and then the only thing i would say because it's very you know happy to have years at the the economist i think if you find you're in a place that is very settled it will of course have structures and those structures although they will be changed by different boxes but if they are more rooted uh, i think the interesting thing about coming into a growth company is it will try to professionalize quickly by putting in structures but it may turn out to be just a bit easier if you decide that actually would be better if these teams co-reported that there's the dreaded thing, the dotted line. Yeah, 100%. I want to turn to the sort of current political landscape. And the first question really is on the Conservative Party. Is the Conservative Party too divided to rule? I think it's not too divided to govern, as we're talking now, Doug. I think Rishi Sunak has steadied it enough to be able to govern functionally, which I think is not really the case if we look to 
the events of last uh, autumn, it clearly wasn't able to govern mm. because if you can't control uh, your own mini, or so-called mini budget, but it was a, according to meeting budget, mm. is the absolute macro budget. Macro budget. <laughs> it really is. Uh, it was something much more. It was a blow up in the system, and it obviously caused the actually caused it in the markets. I think the party had risked from Brexit onwards and the way that it has conducted itself just being ungovernable, whoever was in charge. And I think to the credit of Rishi Sunak, this may not be anything like enough to uh, give him a betting shot at the no. next election. But I do think he has brought a sort of governability back to the party. And you can see it in the way that when the Northern Ireland critical came up again and he came up with the Windsor framework and that sort of sense that even the royal branding, sort of biscuiting. Oh, the statecraft was brilliant. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I think we got, you know, then we all held our breath, waited for our friends in the ERG, because if you're ever making political radio, which I do quite a lot, the ERG was an absolute blessing. European research great, group. Sorry, yeah. the European research group who are the right wing Eurosceptics, very well organised. A charismatic group of people, Steve Baker. Very sort of usual sounding boards about what they would tolerate on the rights of party and what they wouldn't. You know, the work periods um, really felt they were in control. And I remember, you know, sitting with Philip Hammond, the then Chancellor, in an interview, and just something that he immediately said, well, I think, you know, this isn't going to happen. Then immediately happened. And he said, ah, well, then you are then. And that was basically what it was like to be Chancellor, Foreign Secretary, Prime Minister at the time. And it, was, it wasn't that he'd said anything ridiculous, mm-hmm. he'd said something that he was. It made an analytical call on, I was pushing you on it. <laughs> His assistant was showed him the phone and he went, oh, it's gone the other way. It was one of the endless... Uh, What's out? No, it was a vote. It was oh, one of the votes, okay. actually. It was one of those, are we ever going to get this thing done? Uh, that's ungovernability. Mm-hmm. You know, when the only way through it, as Boris Johnson saw it at least, was to prorogue Parliament, when the, the opposition were not bad, which I think they should have done, Theresa May's deal, which I think would have taken a lot of pain out of Brexit, but they don't have to do this. You know, I think that was becoming ungovernable. I think we are now back to a more stable stable government, stable opposition, they can slug it out. And so then turning to the opposition, you know, are the Labour Party, have they, you know, they've had a long time, 12, 13 years in opposition, are they ready to govern? Well, I think if you apply the test, could you swap in the top places in cabinet, the shadow cabinet, without wheels falling off, if more than four wheels haven't fallen off already? I think you'd have to give Tim Starmer some credit and say with he's a steady centre, uh, Rachel Reeves, it has an impressive backdrop as Chancellor. Uh, the shadow cabinet always struck me as, as a bit of a, a problem because one thing that happens when parties turn themselves apart is you sort of have been the court with years is some people just go, you know, they're just the sensible people just think, wow, you know, we have easy ways to obviously they may lose their seats mm-hmm. as well. So they go for good reasons because they've got mortgage and they've got you know kids to bring up. But I do think now you could swap across a lot of the shadow cabinet. Now whether it would is for my taste, which is just the way I you know think about politics. But does it need to the last column I wrote it actually for the observer so knowing it was going to be on that kind of centre left audience? Is, is are they prepared to think broadly enough about the challenges to the UK economy mm-hmm. and to technology, to innovation, to who is going to invest here and why? I'm still not sure, but I do know that they are putting in the work 
So to that extent, I think they have become credible. It is a very long way back and long wall. They need big swings in England. They need a massive swing in Scotland to get an overall majority. So my thesis mm-hmm. is they have to be kind of better and a bit braver than they are now. And, you know, they're, they're shadowing tax and spend. The Conservatives are basically writing their budget I think they will continue that because I think the 1992 looms very large in their minds, the tax bombshell campaign. But you do tie your own hands that way because you can't have good ideas as long as there's a price attached. Right. And you bring up Scotland. I mean, does the success of Labour depend on gaining votes in Scotland? You know, is it possible, is it even arithmetically possible to succeed? And I think we were discussing it earlier. Blair could probably just about do it if they didn't have Scotland. But, you know, would Keir need Scotland? And if so, where's he going to look for votes? That's a straightforward yes. He needs Scotland. <laughs> you could say on paper everything's theoretically possible, isn't it? I mean, if Surrey decided tomorrow that the red flag was flying above every golf course in Surrey, then maybe. But it won't. So there's that. But also there are other quite boring but boring interesting is that one way it is you said that's a boring interesting fact is the number of Welsh MPs returned to Westminster has mm-hmm. changed and there are lots of things that are different from in a sense Blair in the way that he was a lucky general as well as a very able one he did command the English landscape in a way that I don't think Keir Starmer quite does electorally and also a number of other things have changed that make it harder and you've got demographic shifts and more all that other Boring, interesting stuff. Um, in Scotland, I think you're right. They have to go hard fishing in SNP waters. The SNP is probably the Scottish National Party, of course. Is, it has a number of problems. It's just had to change its leader. I think it's pretty obvious under uh, duress and under the problems of, of the sort of late Sturgeon period. And that will divide those who are pretty hardline about doing what it says on the tin, getting independence, and those who will be critical of the SNP's recording government but I was just talking to a shadow cabinet member who's very involved with Scottish strategy and when some of us were just gossiping after a BBC question times oh you guys are going to sweep the board in Scotland and she said that's fine when you just look at Scotland as here's a great number of seats you can get should you try getting to each one of those seats Mm -hmm. and then looking at the Labour strategy and how hard it is to get out so the SNP are very good at digging into the communities they're in and I think we sometimes to be a bit self-critical, writing from Westminster a lot, it can feel nice to spend time and commit time. It can feel like a long way away. And we sometimes, we see the numbers and we think, oh, Scotland will be all right, you know, for Labour. It's not necessarily true when you go in on the ground that whatever the problems of the SNP, we can't take them out. And I think Keir Starmer is very aware of that too. Ideally, what he needs is, it's Scotland. And more broadly, he needs Tory switches. So he needs people to despair of the Tory party, and, and for a while he talked about Boris Johnson, but now he doesn't. Gone, but he talks about Tory rule, not Boris Johnson chaos. So I think it dawned on them that they needed to really go into the heart of do not elect Tory, otherwise, we, you know, like it's going to be miserable forevermore. But how do you do that without sounding shrill? And I think that is going to be a really interesting campaign to calibrate. Very interesting, dude. It sounds like it's a bit of an uphill struggle. And I think, you know, looking again to the future, you know, could you see a scenario where Boris Johnson spends a long time in opposition? I find it hard to see Boris as an opposition politician because I think where he's always been very good is he's found his way to journalists with Boris Johnson back in the day. He then decided he wanted politics. He didn't give up journalism. He kept everything juggled. 
he says one thing, he does it. Look, we know, you know, we know the score. The problem with opposition is you're just given the brief. You go out, you have fun attacking the government, but it's a very long call. And I think there are other things he may want to do. Now, I think it's a really shrewd sort of inquiry that you're making because it depends a lot on the margin, doesn't it? If, if he thinks, well, this is a one-term Labour government and I can just knock socks off it and my base will come back and say, then you kept the great blonde man-child. Everything would have been well. I could be wrong. Please have me back on to Sarah's wrong because it's the greatest dish we should all eat in our business, this humble pie. But I think that he may think he wants to do other things. I know that all of friends think that maybe fighting Oxbridge would be a mistake. I think it will put people up against him. And he could easily end up just sitting it out for a while. And remember that you can come back. You'll have done. I mean, Winston Churchill, this great hero, is it's the great example. And uh, someone he you know, knows very well, he in fact sent to the Lords, who certainly kind of owes it once a day. I think Boris will go and be Napoleon on St. Avina. You know, people have friends around him, people telling him that he's still the bee's knees and he will then consider his options. Is he going to want to be, do we shadow what exactly? You know, what do you shadow? And I think a lot of people have found that difficult. They go to the back benches. He's not going to be, you know, shadowing Minister for nothing. So then you just have to turn up in the conference and try or to get not Boris. Turn, or not turn up. I know from <laughs> sporadically working and say publications, Boris, well, trying to get Boris to turn up is hard enough. It's hard, isn't it, to look into someone's soul and see what they might be thinking. He may actually look at the result and make his decision as he always has done in the moment. I want to go back to a sort of broader question on journalism. And if you look in your crystal ball, I mean, to try and equate it to what we do in our jobs, you know, what we try and do is try and find companies or, or industries that are using technology and are adapting quickly to digital disruption and try and find companies that can generate durable returns. Now, I wonder if in journalism we've identified a similar disruptive effect from technology and digitalization. I wonder if there are any other sort of technologies that you can pinpoint that journalists as an industry will use and perhaps be disrupted by. Difficult question. Yeah, good question. Um, I think definitely AI. AI is coming, I'm going to say all of us, but at all of us. Mm. And I think there's been a tendency of middle-class professionals, and that is exactly what journalism very largely uh, constituted of, to think, not my job, no one can write an intro, like me, no one can write, you know, I was boasting earlier about my student headline. Now, a lot of that is actually when you've got that speed of AI now and everything everyone's playing around with, there's an AI that can write your speech or at least copy your writing style. I think there is certainly still an issue about how does AI get the information out. But journalists, they may be very full of journalists, but let's hope that they're not just sort of copying it from someone else. They do go and get it, and their inputs are very personal to the, themselves, to the way that they ask questions, to their relationship with politicians or whoever they're writing about. So AI can write the piece, but AI, I think, can't make friendships with it that way. But yes, that is absolutely, I mean, everything, if you're looking at racing results, sports reporting, court reports, that's jobs. That's a lot of jobs that are already, I think, changing very fast. I will change more layouts, which were, you know, the days of the, the newspaper, newspaper, digital layouts are a skill in themselves, but they tend to be more template-led. So we spent ages, you know, I was trained in associated 
newspapers very much at the scene. This the standards we did when we thought the Daily Mail layouts were beautiful and thought through and argued over and that I think automated very, very fast. So you do lose a lot of jobs that are not, if you like, in the bit where you actually go and find things and analyze them and write them down. And I think that will change a lot. But then you can also see that as an opportunity because you referenced the business model being tricky and so sort of human intensive. That will resolve some of that. And indeed, you know, look at the technology you've got on the desk at the menu you're making, um, giving away magic here. You've got a, a very nice, neat little computer. You've got a good quality microphone and you're podcasting to gazillions. So, you know, there is something very good about the opportunity. You know, we didn't have to go book an inexpensive studio. I mean, lots of things have changed that maybe would have been a barrier. Yeah. So I do see it as an opportunity, but I'm also very aware that some of the things I thought were so specific to my Brilliance, it would be better than AI, Android. Well, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure that's not true. And, and final question, I ask this to everyone. You've discussed you know, what skills you needed to equip yourself with when you were a, a budding journalist. But I wonder what advice you would give to our younger listeners who want to pursue a career in journalism and what skills they need to equip themselves to be successful. I think figuring out what you're most interested in. And then when you've found that, just thinking about where's the edge of it that maybe people are not writing or you would need to know. Young people are very, very good at this, actually, because they're naturally curious. And they ask you what about questions all the time, at least in my offspring do, and I'm sure others that have the same. It's usually something you haven't thought about enough or it's a bit of a challenge to your worldview and you're patient about it. Take it away with you and work with it. And I, I also mean that if you're going into financial journalism or foreign reporting or writing diaries or newspapers, you know, whatever it is, there's always an edge and there's always a little bit of a grey zone where somebody else isn't working. So what is that like? And the only other thing I say, you know, having done a number of jobs, and I've tended to do jobs about 10, 11 years, that seems to be what, you know, my concentration span is. But not, I'm not a big job hopper, but I don't stay in places for life, is... Be prepared to change. And when you see change coming, people are often people are sorry for it. I think they kind of hung on and perhaps hoped that it would come slower. It's unlikely. To, it's more likely now to come faster than slower. And I love that great old French saying, la vie s'arrange mais autrement. Life arranges itself but differently. And I suppose lots of things I've done in my career, I wanted to do those. Well, respondent to be in Berlin, Moscow, the Balkans. I really learned a lot from that. I always wanted to be a foreign reporter as a child. But really, you know, did I expect to be running a podcast department? No. Did I expect to have done a strategy job that they pay her in media? No, not at all. I would have thought that was A, boring, and I wasn't the right person for it. And I learned along the way that just sometimes when there's an opportunity, even if you think it might not be right for you, why don't you go see maybe you're right for it? Sage advice. Emma Kelboy, thank you for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Anne McElvoy from Politico. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.